I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome to This Week in Church History. My name is Michael McMullen. I'm here with my co-host, John Mark Yates, as we reflect on some of the great events that have occurred throughout Christian history. And uh, today, we're thinking particularly about events that we commemorate between 19th and the 25th of April. And as we think about April 21st, 1855, then that's the conversion of Dwight L. Moody. And so we're very honored to be talking today with one of my favorite authors, the award-winning Kevin Belmonte. He's twice been a finalist for the John Pollock Award for Christian Biography, and in 2003, he won that award for his work on William Wilberforce. He's written wonderful biographies, too, on Chesterton and Bunyan and Moody. And today we're honored to hear from him as the expert on Moody with his very enjoyable volume, D.L. Moody, A Life, Innovator, Evangelist, World Changer. Kevin Belmonte has served as script consultant for the BBC and PBS. He was the lead script and historical consultant on the incredible movie Amazing Grace. He's spoken in the British Parliament, for which I'm very jealous. Uh, he's spoken <laughs> in Congress in D.C., for which I'm not jealous. Uh, he's spoken at both Oxford and Cambridge. And he and his wife, Kelly, live at the seaside in Maine, for which I'm also very jealous. <laughs> Welcome this morning, Kevin, to This Week in Church History. Thank you. Glad to be with you. I, uh, I'd like to begin by saying that uh, I, I so appreciated your saying that uh, the literary and academic art of Christian biography is a deeply important one, that for all those who cherish an interest in it, or our practitioners themselves, you see it as a question of stewardship, that our knowledge and awareness of the past, how God has used men and women, how their call to service has unfolded, the movements that resulted, all of this not only enriches our present, but can help us build well for the future. And and to me, that was so well said, so very helpful, especially coming from one who is so intimately a part of it. And it makes me all the more excited to be sharing with you today. Um, I actually see Christian writers and communicators such as yourself as one of God's richest gifts to the church. I would also well, say you. that... Um, you know, I feel like a kindred spirit with you as well, even though we've not actually spoken before uh, because of our kind of mutual love and appreciation for William Wilberforce. <laughs> um, right. Before we turn yes. to Moody in particular, I'd like to ask, um, I, I seem to remember that Moody was married to a Brit, Emma, and, uh, you know, I'd like to ask uh, how that happened and uh, how did it really change him for the better? Uh, well, he would be the first person to say with D.L. Moody that marrying Emma Ravel was the best thing that he ever did outside of coming to faith. <laughs> uh, she, uh, she was a marvelous helpmeet. Hmm. And uh, he, when he was younger, he had... Uh, 
a lot of potential. People sensed that in him, uh, a wonderful, dedicated heart, many natural gifts that uh, were rough-hewn, but yes. fine gifts to be sure. Uh, and she really set about, uh, in a loving kind and supportive way, helping smooth those rough edges. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were so well suited to one another. She was far more cultured, came from a British family, as you indicated, mm. uh, far better educated. Right. Mm-hmm. He had about four years of formal schooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she and he worked together in the most unlikely of settings. It was there in the slum of Chicago that Moody knew his little hell, a very dangerous place, if one's ever seen the film, The Gangs of New York, and hmm. seen the great violence that was there, um, you get a vivid picture of just how violent uh, and uh, dangerous a place that part of Chicago was. Yet the two of them went in there with a, a cadre of, of co-workers hmm. from local area churches and went in among the underprivileged, the immigrant communities, where poverty, hunger, the need for shelter, food, just the wow. basic necessities of life was so dire. And they work there in a Sunday school setting to try and bring the hope of heaven to these people, but also to minister to their physical mm-hmm. needs. So that's how they came together and got to know one another and ultimately married. Wow. When you wrote your biography on Moody, um, you know, was there something in particular that you were trying to do? And, and I wondered if there was anything that uh, you discovered maybe that surprised you in the course of that research? That's a great question. Basically, the approach that I wanted to take, if I could, uh, Mr. Moody is a name that many will recognize, but sadly, he slipped from the edges of our living memory for a lot of folks, particularly younger people. Uh, And what I wanted to do, if I could, was to write the kind of narrative biography that David McCullough has given us so often. You know, you have these vivid word pictures, a, a tremendous sense of place and immediacy, being immersed in the life of a subject in a way that sort of captures interest as a novel might do, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then to try and follow how that life unfolded really in real time, as it were, through newspaper accounts, that kind of thing, to to lend a richness to that sense of immediacy. Uh, Because David McCullough has said, uh, and we have to remember this, that uh, people, historical figures that we look at, uh, they didn't know how things were going to turn out in their life. Yes. Right? What what we know as history was mm. their future. So if we can, <laughs> uh, you know, if we can unfold a story, as it were, um, mm. to try and follow it along with a very real sense of, of their not knowing quite what the future held, but uh, wanting to trust that faith to God and, and attempt great things for Him. Those were some of the kind of benchmarks that I wanted to to go after. And I think. What drew me to the story initially, I have a British publisher, Day One Publications, mm. and they had asked me to do a book, if I could, a brief uh, travel guide to Billy Graham's travels in the UK. Mm. Yes. And so when I was blocking that out in terms of the chapters and the timeline, that sort of thing, the initial spade work that you do, um, I went to the archives there at Wheaton at the Billy Graham Center, and they have his life blocked out almost day by day. Mm. Yeah. from, say, 1950 on forwards. And uh, what I noticed was that in April 1950, uh, Dr. Graham and some colleagues took time away from a visit to New mm. England, made a pilgrimage mm. to Northfield, visited Moody's grave there on Round Top, and uh, prayed. Huh. And it's a powerful piece of symbolism. I think 
on the one hand, he wanted to pay tribute to Moody's legacy, and of course, Emma's right there by his side, and mm. so there probably was a quiet moment when they just prayed and reflected. But then I also think, symbolically, there was a passing of the mantle mm. between D.L. Moody, wow. uh, who reached, and scholars have told us this, uh, perhaps upwards of 100 million people yes. over the course of his right. lifetime. An extraordinary number when you think mm-hmm. that that is before the age of television or radio, yes. that sort of thing. And so when you fast forward to the commencement of Dr. Graham's ministry, and you think of how in so many ways there are carryovers and parallels, you mm-hmm. know, that visit in April 1950, I think, was the real catalyst for me to put pen to paper. That's Very great. Good. Thank you. So as Moody has this amazing transatlantic ministry, uh, this this wasn't that uncommon uh, in, in the day. What was the appeal of of moving back and forth across the Atlantic? It's not like hopping in a plane and you know you you you're there in a couple of hours. This this is a a transatlantic trip. Uh, even during this this time, is you know you're losing a month uh, or so of your life uh, to to make that trek. What's what's the appeal in doing that? Well, if I could put Mr. Moody's hat on for a moment, I think the appeal for him was a very straightforward one. Uh, in the late 1860s, right around 1870 or so, uh, he felt the need to really go deeper in the things of God. Mm. And he said in so many words, you know, I wanted to go over to England and sit at the feet of Charles Spurgeon and George Muller. <laughs> and he wanted to learn from them. Mm. He wanted to visit. Emma had family there, to be sure, you know, yeah. being a British heritage. So there was a, a family component, but spiritually speaking, and I think it's a touchstone for all that the future held for D.L. Moody, that initial trip was really to go over and just soak up as much as he could from the great leaders there in the U.K., Mr. Spurgeon and Mr. Muller. Wow, man. Well, obviously at, at Midwestern, we have a high level of interest in Spurgeon with his uh, collection and his personal library here on our campus. Um, yes. That, <laughs> That ministry uh, and the size and scope of his ministry in the 19th century just is unbelievable. And then when you start thinking through uh, Moody's desire to, to sit at, at, at Spurgeon's feet to uh, polish his boots, as it were, um, and even just to uh, connect with that concept of faith missions and ministry uh, that uh, Mueller so typified uh, is just amazing to think through what that was it was catalytic for the rest of his ministry yes why well, and you put your finger on it when you think about taking ship for a month uh journey you know perhaps a little longer depending on how the currents and the winds were because it was in that transition time between sail and steam power that mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah. um i think that underscores the nature of moody's commitment to wanting to go deeper and cultivate the gifts and the desire that he had to to commend the faith, mm. uh, to sit at their feet, to learn from them. He had a wonderful habit, and he carried it on throughout his life. In his top pocket, he had a little notebook, a, a notepad, we would call it. And he was very fond of writing down what he called nuggets. Mm. And whenever he would meet someone who was better educated, perhaps someone he admired, someone he'd read about, he'd say something like, you know, give me your best thought today. What mm. can you tell me of Christ? Wow. And he would write it down. And those nuggets had a way of mm. finding uh, a place in his sermons. Uh, mm. When it gets to C.H. Spurgeon, uh, 
you look at the pictures of Moody's home library and there on the shelves, he had all the works of Spurgeon. Mm -hmm. And one writer said that Spurgeon's works were his university. He read through them all. It's uh, my parents had the the privilege of uh, traveling in uh, New England um, a few uh, years back. And they send me this picture uh, of a Bible um, from one of uh, the libraries there that has a collection of Moody's um, belongings. And uh, they said, the archivist here doesn't know what to do or to make of this. And they send me this pictures like, do you, do you, can you look at this? And lo and behold, it's one of Spurgeon's Bibles. It's got Spurgeon's yeah. kind of characteristic ink. It's got a, it's like, how, where did that end? <laughs> how did he end up with that there? Um, it was, it was fascinating to find, you know, even Spurgeon had, had given him some personal um, belongings, some personal effects in, in his own Bible. Uh, for him to be able to use. Well, it was full of nuggets. It was. That's what it was. It was in the margin. was a nugget. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, well, what happened was when Spurgeon passed on, uh, he predeceased Moody by about seven years. Uh, Susanna Spurgeon uh, knew of their deep friendship. And I have to tell you a wonderful story that's actually a flash of Moody's sense of humor and Spurgeon's in just a moment. But Susanna Spurgeon, when uh, her husband died, uh, they had several Bibles that her husband had been in the habit of using, Mm. and she thought that they would be nothing more fitting as sort of a capstone to the special friendship they had than to send that Bible on over. And uh, I love one of the things that's written in that Bible. Moody wrote it down. It was one of his nuggets, as you quite rightly pointed out. Uh, Spurgeon had had the the Bible rebound, I believe. Mm. And uh, he had written, uh, this book has been mended, but the lamp is burning as bright as ever. Mm, wow. It's a lovely phrase. Mm. But do let me tell you about the, the point of humor between the two of them, because they, they had a very warm friendship. Um, one of Moody's visits, uh, Spurgeon was in the habit, as most pastors are, you would know this well, uh, of ha- taking Saturdays and sort of being sacrosanct, you know, not to be disturbed, that kind of thing so they could focus on final preparations for the weekly sermon. Well, Moody was about to take ship, and he really wanted to call on Spurgeon, and he knew about this rule, but he sent a card on up to uh, the house servant there to Moody and said, look, can I possibly impose? Uh, I know your rule. And uh, Spurgeon wrote one line on the card and sent it back out to Moody, and he said, "Come, sinners, come." <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> that is so good. Um, I, I once read that um, uh, the great social reformer Lord Shaftesbury once said of Moody that uh, it, it was as if the Redeemer Himself seems to stand before you when Moody preached. Um, You know, I wondered if you could share something about Moody as a preacher. Mm. Well, you know, that's one of the most memorable tributes that uh, Moody received. Mm -hmm. And uh, he and Lord Shaftesbury couldn't have been more different from one another, but there was great mutual respect. I think the thing that stands out to me as I step back a little bit from the whole flow of Moody's life God did give him natural gifts as a speaker. Mm-hmm. He was a born raconteur um, in New England. One of the folkways that was common in the 19th century was to tell stories. You know, one yeah. thinks of Abraham Lincoln spinning yarns on the storefront, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Well, Moody had that gift in spades, and he cultivated it, though, very carefully. And what it, 
Hmm. What it became in his sermons, he, he painted word pictures. Hmm. And he used things like, uh, I came up with a phrase to describe his short, very pithy stories that help things lodge in people's memory. He had the use of what I call a pocket parable. Hmm. He would share short stories, often elements of, of life that everyone could relate to, would be familiar with, but to drive a spiritual point home. But I think the other thing that escapes us, we can well imagine that he might have had sort of homespun um, natural gifts, yes. but he could also be extremely eloquent. There was a touch of the poet in Moody, mm. and just to give you an example, since we're close to Easter, uh, there was another scholar, Dr. James Buckley, very keen judge of homiletics and pulpit presence, and uh, he picked up on something about Moody that went to Moody being eloquent and having a touch of the poet. He said, some persons say, Mr. Moody was not a cultivated orator. Give that passage quoted by Henry Drummond. Search for the man that drove the spear into my side and tell him there is a nearer way to my heart than that. Tell him I forgive him freely and that he can be saved if he will accept salvation as a gift. Mm, wow. So things like that really sneak up on you. Yes. And then yeah, Moody, one line that stuck out to me, I mean, the first time I read it, it just really knocked me back on my heels as being something very beautiful and, and really profound. He said, Earth is the little isle, eternity the ocean rounded. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just think about that. I'm sorry, please go ahead. No, I was going to say that's that's beautiful mm-hmm. in the way that it captures um, sentiment and uh, in in just grabs your your uh, just your attention even in the way that he's he's turning that phrase. Now, uh, some of his his critics blamed him for uh, uh, pretty much playing on people's emotions, especially when paired with. Sankey and uh, the whole gospel hymn uh, type thing within revivalistic meetings. How much did that even contribute to uh, that accusation that he was just pulling on people's emotions? Mm, That's a great question. You know, I think Moody was very wary of that uh, from all that I've been able to read and and be aware of Mm. in my research. he would say things like, you know, I, I really uh, am very wary of sham and pretense, which would have been the 19th century equivalents of sort of manipulative or mm-hmm. things that didn't quite ring true yeah. in terms of the way people comported themselves. And I think he really st- uh, tried to steer clear of that to be sure, uh, you know, the singing of the hymns that Sankey gave the world and, uh, and other writers like Fanny Crosby's mm-hmm. uh, Philip Bliss, so many of the others that wrote these timeless hymns that we think of, the 90 and the 9, Hold the Fort, uh, so many others under his wings. Those hymns help set the table in terms of things that would stir the heart and help people to be receptive to hearing things Mm. about heaven and the gospel message. Uh, But Moody, uh, he was a very orderly person. We have to remember that he grew up in a business setting. and before he gave his life to full-time ministry, as we would call it today, he was well on his way toward making $100,000, which in, you know, 1850s wow. currency conversions, mm-hmm. you know, that's well north of a million dollars today. And yeah. he was 
in his 20s at the time. And he lived in a boarding house with many other very gifted young up-and-coming business types. Mm -hmm. Uh, Marshall Field, or the famous Marshall Field stores there in Chicago, Uh, Levi Leiter, all these other future Mm -hmm. captains of industry. When people would look at them, you know, they would be in a group of people there in the boarding house. A lot of people would, you know, point to Moody and say, he's the one you need to keep your eye on. He was very orderly and businesslike, and Mm. in the meetings that he had, they had a very definite structure to them, Um, and they were very methodical. Uh, Again, not with a view toward being manipulative, but just making sure that people knew what to expect when they walked through the door and that they were being given a guided tour, not just sort of a Mm. uh, sort of unexpected, spontaneous, uh, hard-to-predict kind of setting, but no, no, it's much more of a guided tour, uh, an introduction to things of eternity. Mm. Is that why the phrase um, head, hand, and heart is, you know, the things you've shared about Moody, is that why that's used as a, a kind of good descriptor of, you know, the whole sphere of, of who Moody was and what he did then? Mm. Well, that particular phrase has to do with uh, two of the schools that he founded out in Northfield, there were four altogether. Of course, we know Moody Bible Institute, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, there was a short-lived school that later merged with the two other schools in Northfield that he had built a, a marvelous grand inn or hotel called the Northfield. Mm-hmm. In winter months, it was dormant because it you know it gets quite cold out there. and The building was lying empty, so Moody thought, my goodness, we could at least do some vocational training, some basics of the faith training. So he started a school there called the Northfield Institute. But the two famous schools in Northfield that we think of today were Northfield Seminary for Young Women and then Mount Homer School for mm. Young Men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that phrase, head, hand, and heart, is associated with the two latter schools. And the idea was Moody wanted to discourage any sense of aristocracy or entitlement. When he created these schools, they were by design for the underprivileged and the underserved in education. Mm. He called them the poor and the half-orphans, pretty much young people as he'd been because his father died when he was only four years old. And right. He was one of nine children. And they had great poverty. He never forgot where he came from. So whether it was mm. among the poor in Chicago or the poor there in a rural setting like Northfield, he never forgot where he came from. And he wanted to establish schools, as he said, such as would have done me good when I was their age. And so when those schools came into being, the idea of equipping young men, young women for ministry, head, hand, and heart in a structured setting um, that struck a balance between training of the mind, helping people go deep in the things of God, the heart component, but then also being willing to roll up their sleeves and work and do what we would call service projects today, I think that is one of the things that really took me by surprise was just how intentional and systematic Moody could be. Of course, he had so many other gifted men and women who worked along with him, but he was very much a driving force behind that kind Mm. of initiative. Wow. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. So one of the games that we like to to play a little bit uh, for our historians is to do something that methodologically we we don't do right. We we play what if games here, um, yes. uh, a little bit. So what what if what uh, what if there was no Moody? What does evangelicalism in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century look like uh, without oh. a Moody? 
Well, in this case, and you're right, it's a game that historians are sometimes reluctant to uh, to take part in. But in this case, it's it's really rather fun and it's really rather striking in Moody's case because we know with the Billy Graham story that I shared just a bit ago, had there been no D.L. Moody, who would Dr. Graham have looked to as a model, as an exemplar to follow and Mm. build upon? And we remember that not only did Moody speak to, you know, upwards of 100 million, perhaps a little north of that, over the course of his ministry, but he did it in places where people weren't in the habit of going. Mm. He'd go to churches, yes, but he would also go to an opera house. He would go to a great agricultural um, Mm -hmm. venue. Uh, He would go to places, any place that had a venue where you could fit between five and 10,000 people in. And of course, the great Chicago World's Fair in 1893. I mean, uh, he went there and it's said that he ministered, he and his team, to upwards of two million people Mm -hmm. at a time when people were saying he ought to boycott the fair. Mm -hmm. Um, He was so out in front and defying convention in that sort of way. A lot of Christians were saying we ought to sue the fair, it's open on Sunday. And Moody, with uh, loving uh, agreeing to disagree, kind of attitude, said, hey, you know, in the entire world, people from all languages and corners Mm. of the globe are coming here. If we miss this opportunity, you know, we'll rue the day for decades. And so he mobilized an incredible network of people to take advantage of that opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, all those things fed into the kind of approach that Dr. Graham had. So that's one way you could sort of get at that. But another colorful way we could play what if I'm mindful of the uh, article that actually exists in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Neither Moody nor Sankey were born in Britain. They weren't people who would normally appear Mm. in the pages of the DNB. But there's an entire article that traces their cultural influence. It was thought Mm. to be so pervasive and had such an impact on the flow of 19th century Christianity there in the UK and throughout the British Isles that it warranted an article, even though Moody and Sankey weren't British. So wow. we wouldn't have that. Wow. And that's that's a legacy. That's amazing to, to think through. Thanks for thinking through that mm. question with us. Now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you specifically is, uh, at Midwestern, we are always talking about things being for the church. Um, mm. Moody himself seemed to have a, an interesting relationship with the church in the sense that he was always engaged in parachurch work. You don't see him as connected to a local church. How does that work out in his his ministry overall in that that tension between parachurch work and local church work? Mm. It's a great question. I mean, we think of, for example, the Wesleyan Church, taking its name from John Wesley. Um, there could have been a moody a Moodian church, that kind of thing. If if, <laughs> if he had uh, given in, you know, to the temptation, uh, of mm. course, that was the furthest thing from his mind. Uh, you know, he said, look, it, it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the Lord. Mm. So if ever anybody even came close to going down that road, he was quick to cut them off. But having said that, I mean, the church that is now the Moody Church there in Chicago, which was named after his time mm. to honor his memory, um, that grew out of the Sunday school mm-hmm. that he established, which had hundreds of young people, desperately poor, 
Of course, their parents in time came along. So mm-hmm. before Moody, Emma, and the rest of that wonderful company of Christian workers there knew it, they, they had what to all intents and purposes was a church. Yeah. Um, it became the Northside Tabernacle, and uh, a short time afterward, the Chicago Avenue Church. Um, there, a church grew up out of that, but mm-hmm. it was not the original intent. Um, Moody was uh, the most visible person connected with that work. He was instrumental in having pastors appointed. He would preach there from time to time. But I think it became apparent to get to the whole parachurch, local church dichotomy, uh, that traveling the length and breadth of the the United States, Mm. going over to the UK several times, uh, that kind of thing really, he understood before too, too long, that that's where his calling was and yes. really where he could be the most useful. So although he did a lot to encourage churches, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I hasten to say that one of the really sterling chapters from Moody's life, and that of Sankey as well, is they renounced any royalties from the incredibly popular, best-selling Moody Sankey gospel mm. hymns books. Mm. That was, I've been told, one of the most lucrative copyrights in the late 19th century. Wow would have been worth millions in today's monies, and they refused to touch a penny Mm -hmm. of it. And one of the ways that that huge cash of money over time, I think the the foundation started up in the 1870s and finally closed its doors around 1900 or so, so a good 25 years, Moody had a, a board of trustees appointed, and they oversaw the disbursement of those funds. So uh-huh. part of it went to finish the church there in Chicago. Mm-hmm. A lot of it went to orphanages yeah. and hospitals around the world, the British Isles and America mm-hmm. predominantly, Christian missions. Um, I think those kinds of vignettes begin to get at the question of how uh, involved Moody was mm-hmm. with the local church level, say the Chicago church or later in Northfield when he moved his base of operations there. But he was really very much involved at the same time with trying to nurture more widely scattered church initiatives. Some were parachurch, others were more formal established church settings. He, in that sense, he was sort of a jack-of-all-trades mm. ministry-wise. Wow. Well, Kevin Balmonte, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about uh, D.L. Moody. I'd like to encourage our listeners uh, to grab his uh, very well-done book, D.L. Moody, A Life, Innovator, Evangelist, World Changer. And it can be purchased at the Sword and Trial Bookstore at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's beautiful campus. But since we're under quarantine season, you can also pick that up on our online uh, Sword and Trial Bookstore. We'd encourage you to grab that and be gripped by a very moving story Uh, about uh, a man who really did shape much of uh, British and American culture at the close of the 19th century. So thanks again, Kevin Belmonte. Hopefully in the future we can talk uh, even about some of your other research interests. I'd like that very much. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll see you next week or this week in church history.